Welcome to Saving You is Killing Me, Loving Someone with an Addiction podcast. Loving someone with an addiction is a life of chaos. This podcast is to help you take back your power and build strength, hope, and restore peace in your life. We use the science and art of positive psychology, professionals in their field, along with personal stories of hope, resilience, and strength. We hope you can discover how the courage to focus on you can help put your life back together. When you are in a place of exhaustion, hopelessness, and emptiness, we are a community that knows all too well the turmoil that comes from loving someone with an addiction. We are here to help you compassionately struggle well. Hey there, you're listening to the Saving You Is Killing Me podcast hosted by me, Andrea Seidel. I'm the author and founder of Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. This podcast is for you if you're ready to find a way to struggle well, take back your power, and live life happier while you're navigating loving or losing someone to addiction. I wholeheartedly believe that when you love someone with an addiction, your life gets damaged in some way. Since we can't control someone else's addiction, but we are greatly affected by it, the number one thing you can do is take back your power and focus on you. I believe happiness, joy, and well-being is available to anyone. So the thoughts and perspectives I share here on the show are my own and those of the guests on the show. If you ever hear anything that feels harmful or triggering, I'm pre-apologizing and I'm open to being better and value any feedback and the permission to be human. That said, always take what you love, what feels good and leave the rest The conversations and tools I'll share here will give you everything you need to figure out exactly how to navigate addiction, put yourself first, and how to build resilience for your well-being in a way that feels really, really good. I use these tools to take back the power in my life to build my strength back up and restore peace. And I teach my clients how to create their own version of a life where they can tap into their power and restore their happiness. My goal is so that you don't feel alone and that you feel supported. I am here for you. Sending hugs. Hey there, Andrea Seidel here. I hope you're doing as good as can be. And I always say, I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, but I'm so happy that we have found each other because this is a whole community of support. And we just want you to know that you are not alone. Now, today I have such an amazing guest on the show, and I'm so thrilled to introduce you to her. But today I thought we'd talk about the typical misconceptions of addiction and what we need to know about addiction, especially when we love someone with an addiction. Of course, addiction is so complex and it affects millions of people in this world. And there are so many misconceptions about addiction uh, that actually prevent us from understanding what's going on and understanding. I remember I was so confused when I was in the muck of loving someone with an addiction. There was so much denial. I didn't know what was going on. And I actually thought it was like a moral 
flaw. I thought it was a choice. I thought he was choosing drugs over me and um, all these things and that it was a, a weakness or a lack of his willpower. And I had all these misconceptions around addiction. And it's likely that you might have them too, because it's so confusing. So I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest today, Dr. Evelyn Higgins. She is a specialist when it comes to the neuroscience and the epigenetics behind mental health complexities, as well as addiction. And she is the founder of Wired for Addiction. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Evelyn Higgins. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Andrea. In your intro, you just nailed everything that I want your listeners to hear more of. Well done. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, let's just, I would love to hear a little bit about yourself and just so the listeners know, you know, you're just your wealth of genius and 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 where you are in this world. Sure. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I got started here some 35 years ago. Uh, I was practicing in the area of disability and pain management in a rural area. And the model that was used was an approach of try this, try that, We'll see if that works. If it doesn't, we'll half it or we'll double it or we'll move on to this. And I wasn't seeing people get any better. Then 20 years after that, I'm practicing in an urban area, yet I'm seeing the same thing. Try this, try that approach, half it, double it, whatever the case may be. And I'm seeing people move from dependent to addicted. You know, had that worked, you and I would never be having this conversation today because I would have never continued on to do the work that I do. The second layer of my why is that I married an alcoholic, a man actually who had several addictions. A year after our daughter was born, we found out that my husband was adopted. Now I needed to know health history. I needed to know because I had nothing to look at. Well, we look at these relatives or these relatives. There was absolutely no information. So combination of personal and professional driving my why to start where I end up today. That long ago, I, I became a certified addiction professional to be able to use it with my patients, but also to know what this looks like. Because now I had a child here that I had concern as a parent. So that was really my why, 16 years of R&D to get to where we are today with Wired for Addiction. And, you know, when we can identify biomarkers like we do in our panel, we look at 85 different biomarkers, it takes that moral flaw out of the picture because that is the misconception of society, that it's a moral flaw. You know, I, I did a TED Talk and it's called Understanding the Biomarkers of Addiction. And in there, I say, you know, if someone has diabetes, we don't say to them, why are you so weak? However, when it comes to addiction, we think it's okay to say that to someone. And the sooner we get out the moral flaw aspect of this, we're going to lose the stigma. We start to lose the stigma. We create it like we, we treat it like a disease that it is. And we start making progress. The mentality of you got yourself here get yourself out is ridiculous. And, and there's a total inequity in this part of healthcare, Andrea, because other areas have used technology to advance how we treat patients, yet in the addiction space and the mental health space, we're kind of like, you got yourself here, get yourself out. And it's 2023. We're practicing as if it's 1950, 70, 1990, 2000. Nothing has changed. Oh my gosh. Okay. So many things come up for me. Okay. First of all, 
I know our listeners and I know for me too is um, oftentimes it's this idea of choice and I do agree. Yes. Okay. So I do agree this idea too of it becomes a disease, but does it like, I would love to just hear your expertise and your opinion or your perspective on this idea. And you did say it starts with the dependability, like they're depending on something. And so it, they, it starts perhaps with the choice or choosing to either manage pain or they're choosing to numb out, you know, things like that. There it's, is choosing in the beginning and then they become dependent on it and then it becomes an addiction. So maybe that clarity will help the listener sort of understand because as soon as we say, oh, it's a disease, it's kind of like, then, you know, you get this idea of like, well, it's a cop out or it's like, you know, it's like, oh, they're blaming it on uh, that they have a disease. And, and then we get into the whole debate of like, okay, but when it comes to diabetes, I don't have someone in my garage stealing my money out of my wallet, or I don't have someone abuse coming home and abusing me, or I don't have someone, you know, so it's, it's different. Addiction is really messy. It's complex. And I think that we, we want to make sure we talk a little bit about that. So yes, sure. I would just love to hear your perspective. So complex is the perfect word, Andrea. Addiction is such a complex disease. It's a biopsychosocial disease. Every other disease does not have to deal with all those components. We all still have free will. You know, we can identify all the biomarkers we want, but if that individual chooses to say, yeah, I'm not interested, that's their choice, right? Most people start where they wind up with an addiction for a diagnosed condition that's not being treated properly, there are co-occurring disorders that go on, anxiety, depression, ADD, ADHD, OCD, the list goes on and on. So it's not been identified correctly, therefore not being treated correctly, or an undiagnosed condition that we're not doing anything about, or a trauma. And the person, the individual starts by trying to self-medicate. When I talk to people and, and someone says to me the first time they had a beer, they remember it. One story just this week, um, 40-year-old boy at the, at the beach with his dad. His dad was going to go in the water and he said, here, hold my beer. He said, I remember at four years old how that made me feel. And I said, I found it. And the stories that wrap around for people are just like that. That self-medicating drive finds them to, wow, for the first time, I feel good. And that self-medicating works initially, but it works until it doesn't work. Oh, my gosh. And and that really does help us um with the perception of looking at the addicted loved one in our life from a place of compassion and, and almost understanding or, or trying to understand that um, maybe perhaps it did start from, um, you know, self-medicating or from a place of numbing out or from a place that, that there, there might have been an imbalance. And, and so this biomarker, can we speak a little bit to that, that, that maybe are we predisposed to this or, Sure, sure. That's actually the information that was just put out um, with the new NIH study, uh, March 22nd, that really talks about the breakthroughs and, and the new strategies, because we're now seeing this as a predisposition. So a genetic predisposition, and, and that can really change the mentality and the treatment. I can't tell you, Andrea, how many times when we're sitting with an individual, a patient, and, and or their family together, and the person starts crying 
because they're like, wow, I thought I was, and I'm saying this in air quotes because we're in a podcast, right? And I'm like, in air quotes, I thought I was crazy. I am not because we're objectively identifying. Everything else is subjective. I feel, I think, we should, we shouldn't. These are data points and they actually start to cry saying, I actually thought I was crazy. This makes so much sense. And their families can kind of start to see, wow, they're not acting out. They're not trying to create all this havoc within our family. Every holiday hasn't doesn't have to be ruined because this is what's going on with them. You know, in, in the self-medicating part, a diagnosed or an undiagnosed condition, nobody is reaching for something outside of themselves to bring into them unless there's something going on with them. It's not normal to want to change that inside of you, that what we call the homeostasis, that balance, unless there's something that needs correction. So, okay, so let's delve into that idea of um, having, so first of all, having a new perspective on this, a little bit of compassion for the addicted loved one in our, in our lives and that they might be self-medicating and that this, this could and also the predisposition of having these biomarkers that they're data points that basically are saying that we might be predisposed to addiction. But I love that you bring in this piece of free will. There still is this free will. So can we talk about free will? Sure. Free will is telling us like, okay, maybe I did identify or I didn't identify. I'm choosing to do this. I still want to go down this road. And, and that's part of being human, right? Every day we get to make choices every single day. What we do is say, here, we've identified everything. Now it's up to you, pass or play. What do you want to do? And, and there's, there's a lot of freedom that can go along with that too of this is identified how do you want to play you still get to be in charge and choose your destiny okay so this is is so confusing right so we we know so this free will component is that that is the humanness of it and that um that people can choose, you know, you're in charge of, you know, the direction you go in. We, maybe we know your predisposition, you know, maybe you you are self-medicating, but are you saying that an addict actually is at a point where they they can practice free will? Because I think like I think it's confusing, especially for the listeners and for those who love someone with an addiction. It's like, well, okay, if it's free will and they do have a choice, so is addiction actually a choice? Like and then the idea here is that is it once the change in our brain chemistry is so in active addiction is so strong that is that when it becomes not a choice or let's let's talk about that a little bit more. right so great point that's where I wanted to go with it so we've identified what's going on if we haven't changed anything within those neurotransmitters those brain chemicals those hormones or what also we look at what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, the genetic part of this, but starting with the transmitters, the, the neurotransmitters, the brain chemicals. If we haven't made any changes there, if you want to practice free will and say, I'm not doing this, that's going to be your choice because you haven't changed the parts of you that still are being driven by whatever that underlying tone is, be it anxiety, be it depression, be it ADHD. As I said, the list goes on and on. But that's still driving the clinical correlation of the choice that you make. So you can say to somebody, just, just pacify me. 
just give this a shot. You will start to change the way you think once those neurotransmitters have become optimized. And the way people are being diagnosed and treated now is all based on vocabulary. So what if my vocabulary is different than yours, Andrea, and we wind up with two different places because the definitions didn't mean the same thing to us. So that's literally how people are being prescribed and diagnosed. We remove that, we use objective biomarkers. Once that person starts to think differently, there is a complete opening to say, I had no idea how bad I felt because I felt that way for so long. Until you're on the other side of it, you don't understand how bad you actually felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing you say then is this idea is, is as long as the addicted loved one in our life isn't so far gone, so to speak, in the addiction or in such active addiction that, you know, they've messed up their whole dopamine, their brain chemistry in some way. Um, th there is that opportunity for them to exercise their free will and to make choice and to go down the path for them that that they're that they desire. Whereas if it's gotten to the point where their whole brain chemistry is completely messed up, where they're they're not necessarily getting dopamine from being in relationships, they're getting their dopamine from their drugs, and so they'll, they're going to go in that direction. Is is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Sure. But there's also even somebody that's, you know, messed up their dopamine, as you say, can that still be optimized? Almost all the time, yes. It can be optimized. Okay, so so while it's true that individuals make a choice to engage in substance use or the addicted behavior, um, addiction itself is not a choice. Correct, correct. It's there, there's a predisposition there. You still have to act out on it. That's where the choice would come in. But that's the whole part of why we do what we do, because we, for the first time, have objective information. For the first time, we have biomarkers. That's what makes this different. Okay, that's amazing. So fascinating research that and 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 you you call it addictionology. That can you explain like that term? And I think that that is so incredible. Is that what basically everything that you're doing here is? So right. So the the terminal um, degree is in addictionology, the study of addiction, and that goes along with the mental health component too, addiction and, and obsessive compulsive disorders, all the other parts that we're talking about of why we go out and self-medicate to begin with. So that this is the complexity of all of it, right? Calling it a bio-psychosocial disease. The bio part, we've done the psychosocial. You know, that's somebody goes to rehab, they're talking to counselors, maybe they're on MAT, maybe they're not, depending on where they go. But we haven't addressed that biological component. We haven't addressed that physiology. We, we look at biology as, you know, you need to sleep at least eight or nine hours a night, make sure that you're well hydrated, eat good foods, that kind of stuff. We're beyond that now. We're, we're taking technology and bringing it into this area of health. 
That's incredible. And you're right. It's so complex. It's almost like we're talking about, okay, so there's, there's so many factors involved, right? Like such as the brain chemistry and, and, and then these genetic predispositions or these genetic factors, but then also there's the environmental factors. And like you said, trauma, and it's so complex. And I think that's why it is so confusing. And I think that's why there's this constant debate about choice and and things like that. So, okay, so let's go into this, this, uh, and when we first started talking, um, you talked about this idea of moral failing. And can we talk a little bit about this myth, this misconception about that it's a moral failing? And we kind of touched on it, but maybe we delve into a little deeper. Sure, sure. That That's still, unfortunately, a lot of what exists today is that there's a moral failure, that this individual just wants to act out this way, wants to be this way. No one wakes up saying, this is the day. I'm going to lose my family, my friends, my job, my home. Today's the day I'm going to ruin my life. It doesn't work that way. It starts out with, hey, we got a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There's a dependency. If you have biomarkers for a predisposition, you're not the person that, let's say like when I talk to young people, in my TED talk, I'm like, what if in your youth, you had these identified? Would you make different decisions? Posing that question to people, would you make different decisions? But you, when you're at an age, whatever that is, and your buddies come to you and say, hey, after school today, we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. We're all doing it. You know, Come on with us, and you go, and, and whatever that behavior is, drugs, alcohol, whatever. And you do it with everybody. Next day, you're like, hey, we're going to do that again, right? No, no, we're cool. We did it. We tried it. No, no. And that individual with this predisposition says, no, 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 I want to do this again. Whereas the other people like, no, I tried it. I'm good. And could walk away from it. This is the part to identify. I mean, I'm an optimist. So in, in the perfect world, to me, this would be early in the game. Identify this just like we do with other diseases. You know, you know, like in your family, there's cancer running in your family, there's cardiovascular going on. You have to be careful of these things. You see your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, la 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 la. This for you is mental health and addiction. We should have that open conversation, just like we talk about the other diseases that run within genetic parts of people's family. Oh my gosh. So what I'm hearing you say is that just by having this information about this predisposition, it's almost like once we have that knowledge, that knowledge is power, I believe. And like just the the fact that you can identify that certain individuals might be predisposed to addiction is so profound because just by pre-identifying this, we could build in the skill sets, we could build in the prevention, or we could look at other ways to help them so that they are informed. So people are informed. So then they may be, you know what, I'm predisposed to this. So I'm, I'm going to choose opt to opt not to do that. Or I'm going to choose to learn all the skills and coping strategies that I can for, you know, the, so I don't have to self-medicate. I can look for other ways. So I love this. And what I'm hearing you say is really like a huge prevention. Like you're, you're really an activist, activist for prevention and looking at it before it even becomes an issue. Absolutely. It's uh, to identify in someone's life, like, hey, I don't have the wiggle room in this area of my life. So just like you said, like, let me let me put some tools into my toolbox so I know how to mitigate if it's I get stressed out more than somebody else. If if I 
you know, take everything on and it, it starts to really wear at me and I want to go do something to get rid of that. That's not a healthy option. So you start lining up what's in my toolbox. What do I want to do? Because I don't have the wiggle room to play there. That's not going to be a good thing for me. Let me find something else to do. Oh my gosh, that's powerful. That can be so powerful. Absolutely. So a lot of the listeners though, they're already in the muck. They're loving someone with an addiction right now. So I'm so curious, like from your perspective, like, is there something we can do with this now? If it, is it too late at this point or is it, you know, so what is it, what is it that we can do? No. So like you said, if someone's in the, the muck right now, it, it would be kind of what I said a little bit earlier. It's identify what's happening here. And then once the first layer of this, those neurotransmitters and hormones are balanced to where they should be, the brain starts to think differently. Different choices are made. You, you now say, I, there's a clinical correlation to me understanding that, hey, that behavior doesn't serve me. Whereas before, that wasn't possible because the imbalance and everything that's going on being your, your everything less than optimal your choices that you're making are because of where you are at physiologically. Mm -hmm. And that's for the addicted loved ones. So I often say sometimes we take on secondhand um, addiction. So we're taking on addiction like it's our own problem. But as we know, we we can't we have no control over it. We didn't cause it. We can't cure it. So as a bystander watching this all go on, um, from your professional opinion perspective, like what is the best thing that we can do um, since we can't make decisions and we, we, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't love them hard enough to make the addiction go away. So, you know, and this podcast is all about regaining our own power and our own strength and focusing on yeah. ourselves. So being armed with this information, how would it help us? So, you know, it's about your, your listener saying, I'm strong enough and I can live with this. You know, maybe just pose a conversation of, I learned about this on Andrea's podcast or however you want to say, I learned about this. And it might be something that you want to look at. Um, if we could identify some of these barriers to you feeling good every day, that might be a win for all of us. You know, not not a hard push, just this is something that just came out. This is brand new technology. This is something that's available to you. And I know it's not because you want to live your life this way. Give it a try. Yeah. And also, I could imagine it might offer a lot of individuals a sense of relief. It's like, oh, my gosh, this makes sense that, yeah. you know, that I can't just have one drink or it makes sense that um, I turn to drugs as a coping strategy or it makes sense. It's almost like um, just validation almost, perhaps yeah. it could. Yeah. It, it's I'm not weak. This makes total sense that I can't go out to everybody with everybody else at the bar and be good with two. I need to stay there until I can't speak and I can't walk. Now this makes sense. Wow. Okay. What am I going to do? This is not something that I have a place that I can continue to stay in. It's going to ruin my life. And it's not just because I feel like doing that on a random Thursday night. It's because I can't stop it. Mm-hmm. 
And I think a lot of this, what we're talking about too, will offer just a just a, a place of compassion for the addicted loved one in our life. I know mine's been out of my life now for over three years. And um, what it does for me is it kind of makes me understand a little deeper of why, and, and I still say chose, why he chose that path, um, well, why he went down that path and why he became dependent and why he became addicted um, because he did have a really tough upbringing and he was abandoned as a child. And there were a lot of things that happened to him and maybe he was predisposed, had some biomarkers that, you know, just that that was his coping strategy, how he numbed out. And so what that does is it, 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 it I'm not feeling sorry for him because he put me through torture, but at the same token, it does offer me a place of compassion for him and, and understanding. And what it does too for me is it makes it so that I don't take it personally. And so that I, and that helps me in such a way to understand that it, this is his problem. It was his problem. And, um, and that although it didn't end great in our situation, this information can be really powerful and empowering, actually, because it it can remove the pressure that we put on ourselves as those who love someone with an addiction. So we can have a little more compassion for them, but not for, I'm not saying condoning behavior, but also a little more understanding and being armed with that understanding can help. Right. I think in the beginning of the show, you said, you know, thinking he didn't love me enough. It has nothing to, to do with nothing yeah. that alone should give somebody a okay i'm starting to see with more clarity that this isn't about me at all it's about them and i think if anything people take away from this episode and the listeners is is exactly that and that it's you know oftentimes we feel like we have a moral failing in our relationship or we're not fun enough or we're not you know as great partners enough or we're just not enough not enoughness is the, the dialogue that often comes up why are they doing that and you know instead of choosing our family or this and that so i think that you know it's so great that you're and you're so right is that it's not about me it's definitely not there's biomarkers involved there's data points there's self-medication going on there's predisposition and and I think that that really does uh ease the pressure that we might put on ourselves absolutely and, and there's a big you know that that just in totality says how complex that is but if we can start looking at objective information we can start cherry picking through the problem and it's not about you it's about what someone has going on within their physiology, where it started, diagnosed, undiagnosed, trauma, maybe all of it doesn't matter They're where they are at today. And this is actually a tool that when employed can make huge differences. Oh my gosh, so you just really hit the nail on the head. So it's really a complex disease and that the more we can educate ourselves about the disease, um, it'll help us in so many ways just to be coexist with an addicted loved one in our life, but also to seek our own source of healing and recovery as well, because it is hard loving someone with an addiction. And so I'm just curious, your wealth of knowledge has just been so inspiring and just so I'm so grateful for you being here with our community. If there is one last thing that you wanted to share with the listener, what would that be? Probably um, to, to put this into the, the science aspect of things, what we do at Wired for Addiction is isolate, identify, and measure. So that takes all of the I think, I don't think 
out of all of it. Let's start there. Let's have objective information, biomarkers, and move on through the problem. Oh, I love that. So removing the emotion, removing the feelings around it, looking at things at objectively, you are such a scientist. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and that's, that, that is a wonderful way to look at it. Taking that emotion out, isolate, identify, measure. So beautiful. And I, of course, I'm going to have the, all your links in the show notes so people can get a hold of you. Um, thank you so much for being here. I am so grateful for you, Dr. Evelyn Higgins. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Andrea, thank you and keep up the good work. You're, you're helping more lives than you have any idea. Thank you for listening. If you want additional support, you can head on over to our website at savingyouiskillingme.com where we have a wonderful, supportive, compassionate community. We are here for you. You are not alone. We also have a private Facebook group and Instagram feed called Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. Be sure to subscribe here so you get the latest episodes. And, of course, share this with your community and your support groups or anyone that's going through this struggle so we can all work together to take our lives back and restore joy. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, but week after week. Although I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you and share these episodes so that we can go on this journey together. Until next week, sending hugs.